Kilij Arslan, Sultan of Rum, was waiting. He and his army were silently hidden among the trees surrounding the road to his capital Nicaea, and they were waiting for invaders. For nearly three months, Latin Christians from faraway lands in Western Europe had pillaged the land of the Sultan. After crossing over from the capital of the Byzantine Roman Empire, Constantinople, they'd done their best to make a nuisance of their presence in Asia Minor, raiding and pillaging Muslims and Christians alike. And so the Sultan formulated a plan. The Crusaders were brutish and stupid. They knew nothing of strategy, and he knew they could be easily lured into traps. So he implanted spies among them, who fed false information to the Crusaders. Through his spies, he spread a rumor that the capital Nicaea had already fallen to the Army of the Cross, and that the booty was already being divvied up, trying to lure the rest of the army to rush down roads he had already surrounded with his forces. Even when the Crusaders received contradictory information that the Sultan's army was already closing in on them, they were not dissuaded from launching an attack on Nicaea. At dawn, on October 21st, 1096, a crusading army of 20,000 men marched out from the camp at Civitat, leaving behind the old and the sick and the women and children, and they set off on the road to Nicaea. As they passed through a wooded valley, they chatted loudly about the immense wealth they would find there, how rich they would all be after they sacked the holy city where the first ecumenical council under the Emperor Constantine had convened nearly eight centuries earlier. They didn't know it, but as they daydreamed about bloody pillaging, they were walking into the eye of a storm. Suddenly, the early morning sky darkened above the Army of the Cross, and thunder erupted loudly all around them, as black clouds of arrows rained down, and the pounding of hooves shook the earth. The storm of Turkmen horse raiders tore the Army of the Cross apart. Those left alive turned and fled in a rout back to their camp. Back in that camp, many were still asleep. A few overzealous priests were calling for morning masses to pray that the army's mission be blessed by God and bountiful. And everyone was very confused as the bloody remnants of that same army came howling back at full speed. Hot on their heels were thousands upon thousands of Turkmen warriors. As the realization of what had happened to the army and what was about to happen to them dawned, panic set in. Some fled into the woods, some into the sea, but only a handful managed to escape. As the Turkmen swarmed into the camp, only a few were spared to be sold as slaves. The rest were butchered. Later that day, as the sun set on the blood-soaked soil and burning wreckage which had once housed what would come to be known as the Peasants' Crusade, Kilij Arslan relaxed, confident that his realm was secure. If that was the best Latin Christendom had to offer, he was wholly unimpressed. He was the ruler of the land of the Romans, Asultan Arum. Through his veins flowed the blood of the mighty Seljuk himself. His father, Suleiman, son of Kutlumush, had built this kingdom out of nothing. And it was going to take a lot more than some unwashed barbarians from the wastelands at the edges of the known world to bring it down.
Hello, and welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 1.11. Make room. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Post-1072 Anatolia. What a fucking mess. We skirted around the subject in episode 1.7 when we discussed the Armenian statelets that formed in the wake of Manzikert, but today, we're really diving into it. By 1081, the political boundaries for the next few centuries will have more or less stabilized. The Roman Empire will have been nearly completely ejected from Asia. Only the coasts of the Anatolian Peninsula will remain loyal to Constantinople. The plateau will belong to the Turkmen. Specifically, the Sultanate of the Romans. The Sultanate of Rum. Well, at least in theory. Though the Sultanate of Rum was the most powerful entity on the peninsula, we can't forget about the Armenian statelets in the southeastern corner, as well as the various local powers present within the Sultanate. Though the Turkmen had moved in, not everyone had moved out. Anatolia had been Roman for over a thousand years, and it would continue to retain these characteristics for centuries. It's really only in the last 100 years that the region we think of as Turkey has lost its significant Greek and Christian population. In 1923, the nations of Greece and Turkey organized a population exchange, which is exactly what it sounds like. Based on religious identity, the Rum, or Romans as they are still known in Turkey, were forcibly repatriated to Greece, and the Turks in Greece were sent the other way. This measure displaced approximately 1.8 million people. 1.2 of them were Christians sent to Greece, most of them ethnically Greek, but because the division was based on religious identity, Turkey also expelled many Armenians and even Christian Turks. On the other side, Greece forced the migration of a half million Muslims, mostly ethnic Turks, but also any other Muslims, including many Albanians. Unsurprisingly, the forced relocation of nearly 2 million people at a time when the entire population of Greece was only 5 million turned into a clusterfuck of a refugee crisis. The tragic epilogue to decades of ethnic cleansing and violence uh, throughout the region. There's a reason that population transfers are now considered crimes against humanity by international law. The horrors of the 20th century, though, are well beyond the scope of this podcast. What's more relevant for us is just how numerous the ethnic Greek or Rum population in Anatolia was centuries after the Battle of Manzikert and the Sultanate of Rum and even the rise of the Ottomans. You can just imagine how heterogeneous the situation was in the 11th century. Newly arrived Turkmen, some only recently converted to Islam, Arab groups from Syria who joined up with them, local Roman and Armenian forces, and not to mention the Frankish knights who'd served in the ranks of Romanos Diogenes. All of these groups fought and allied with each other as was convenient. Today's fearsome foe could be tomorrow's formidable friend. Meanwhile, the Roman Empire, from their position in the Balkans, and the Seljuk Empire, based in Persia, both served as legitimizing entities as they tried to exert influence over the region. It was a cutthroat environment, unforgiving of fools. But as Littlefinger says, chaos is a ladder. That sentiment would have resonated with Suleiman ibn Kutlumush. He seemed eager to leap into chaotic situations and find a way to turn them to his advantage. I have to say seemed, because for as important as he was, we know relatively little about the first Sultan of Rum. Though that term is a bit anachronistic, as the title of Sultan could only be bestowed by the Caliph, and even though his descendants definitely used it, Suleiman didn't have the same level of legitimacy. 
to be honest, we know relatively little about the origins of the Sultanate in general. This is in large part a source issue. Now, as I mentioned, by the 1080s, the Romans will have lost most of Anatolia, a great blow, and accordingly, no one really wanted to take the blame. In fact, this looming disaster hangs over the entire previous century. Many of our sources are aware that things get worse, and they look back to previous rulers for an explanation. This situation is particularly dicey for the 1070s. We will have to deal with the specifics of what's going on in Constantinople, but in two words, civil war. It's a real fucking mess. And all of our sources have their own little bias. One of our best sources, for example, is Anna Komnena, daughter of the guy who comes out on top, Alexios Komnenos. Alexios is active throughout the entire period as a general, and of course, she's eager to paint him in the best light possible. Another one of our sources is Anna's husband, Nikiforos Briennios Jr., whose father, or possibly grandfather, Nikiforos Briennios Sr., is also very active throughout the period. Briennios Sr. was present at the Battle of Manzikert, and so his son's account of the battle, which is very detailed, has some reliability issues, for example. In general, working with these sources can be very tricky, and so it's hard to get a clear picture of what's actually going on. Meanwhile, on the Turkish side, things are no less biased. Suleiman has a highly revered position in the story of Turkey. His area of operation and the borders of the Sultanate of Rum line up pretty nicely with the borders of modern Turkey, the Turkish core of the Ottoman Empire. So he's a bit of a hero figure for them. This, of course, leads to very pro-Suleiman narratives, also muddying the waters. Suleiman's relationship with the great Seljuk Empire is also tricky. Suleiman was a Seljuk, remember? He's part of the same dynasty. So he and his successors presented a possible challenge for the Seljuk Sultan in Isfahan, and vice versa. The Sultan of Rum was another possible contender for the throne of the great Seljuk Empire. And on the other side of the coin, if the Sultan of Rum was just a junior member of the Seljuk dynasty, his conquests were by rights part of the Seljuk Empire, and should just be another province. This tension went all the way back to Tugrul Beg. When he nominated Changri's son as successor, he was skipping over the son of the previous head of the clan, Kutlumush. And so, Kutlumush pressed his claim, and ended up dead. Though the eastern Seljuks had come out on top that time, there was no reason, in theory at least, that a descendant of Kutlumush couldn't reactivate the claim. If you recall from episode 1.6, Albarslan actually wanted to execute Kutlumush's sons, Suleiman included, but his vizier, Nizam al-Mulk advised against it. After falling into the hands of Al-Barslan, we lose track of the sons of Kutlumush for a while. In fact, we don't even know how many there were. There were probably at least three, apart from Suleiman, the other consistent name is Mansur, and even that only appears sporadically. More commonly, the sons of Kutlumush are called just that, in Arabic, Ibn Kutlumush. What is clear, though, is that the sons of Kutlumush were highly respected. This was not just theoretical legitimacy. For the various Turkmen warlords that spread out throughout the world of the Eastern Mediterranean, the sons of Kutlumush were just as legitimate as the great Seljuk Sultan. In fact, before they would come to rule over Anatolia, the sons of Kutlumush made attempts at coming to power in Syria-Palestine, an endeavor that reveals a lot about the way the sons of Kutlumush used their legitimacy to bring disparate Turkmen groups under their banner. In episode 1.8, we briefly met the Turkmen warlord Atsiz. If you recall, the Fatimid general, Badr al-Jamali, 
had attempted to use Atsis to seize hold of Jerusalem during the great calamity of the late 1060s and early 1070s. It's a bit of an overstatement to say Atsis then betrayed Badr al-Jamali in taking Jerusalem and later Damascus for himself. The Turkmen ruler wasn't and never would be subservient to any master. As I mentioned then, Atsis was supposedly a vassal of the great Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah, who in return had confirmed Atsis' rule over the chunk of Syria-Palestine he'd won for himself. But Atsis was pretty much independent. Still, his nominal loyalty to the Sultan was a convenient tool. It gave him legitimacy. He wasn't the only warlord in town, though. Atsis faced fierce competition from a variety of other contenders. Some loyal to the Fatimids, some independent, some Shia, some Sunni, some Arab, some Berbers from North Africa, and some, like him, ambitious Turkmen. This last group included a certain Shukli. In 1074, Shukli took the city of Acre from the Fatimids. This was a particularly personal blow for Badr al-Jamali, as his family was still in the city. Shukli took the vizier's wife and children hostages, and he even married the vizier's daughter. He was soon able to set up alliances with the other Fatimid forces around, who no doubt felt a bit abandoned by Egypt and were wary of the growing power of Atsis. Atsis, justifiably, saw Shukli as a threat, and he demanded the new arrival hand over Badr al-Jamali's family. After all, Atsis's position had been confirmed by Malik Shah, and he was supposedly the senior Seljuk official in the region. Shukli refused and war broke out between the two Turkmen. This was a bit of a pickle. Both rulers had military power, but legitimacy still counted for something. Atsis could point to his loose relationship with the Sultan Malik Shah. Shukli didn't have this backing. But he quickly found a solution. After all, the Sultan wasn't the only Seljuk around. You see where this is going, don't you? Shukli enlisted the aid of a son of Kutlimush. Now, whether this was Suleiman or one of his brothers, eh, we don't really know. Though, it was probably one of his brothers. Shukli wrote to this Ibn Kutlumush, saying, quote, You belong to the Seljuk family and the house of kingship. If we are obedient to you and enter your service, we will be honored by you and filled with pride. Atsis does not belong to the house of kingship, and we are not willing to follow or obey him. This exchange clearly shows the possible dynastic value of the sons of Kutlimush. Involving them made any petty warlord legitimate. In fact, for the average petty warlord, an alliance with the son of Kutlimush might have been preferable to one with the great Seljuk Sultan. The former didn't have a huge empire of their own, and so they could be entered into arrangement with on more even terms. This little dalliance between a local Turkmen and a member of the cadet branch of the Seljuk house was made even more surprising when they decided to make it a menage a trois and get in bed with a third player, the Fatimid Caliphate. Shukli was very astute in his planning. He'd gotten himself a counterweight to the great Seljuk Sultan, but he also needed a counterweight to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad. Who better than another Caliph? The Seljuks and the Turkmen in general are often presented as reinvigorating forces for Sunni Islam after a few centuries of the Shia Golden Age. But at this early stage, they were pretty flexible in terms of their Islamic identity, even if they were orthodox about the ruling dynasty. So, as I mentioned, 
Shukli married Badr al-Jamali's daughter in hopes that this would build ties between him and the vizier. Then both he and Ibn Qutlamush declared their support for the Fatimid Caliph. Unfortunately, though this political angle was well thought out, Shukli had bad luck on the battlefield. And in 1075, in a battle with Atsis, Shukli was killed, and Ibn Qutlamush, as well as a younger brother of his, was captured. These two sons of Qutlamush were probably not Suleiman, because soon after their capture, a third brother appeared on the scene. This third brother is usually identified as Suleiman. Suleiman had been raiding in the former Byzantine provinces of northern Syria, but when he heard of his brother's fate, he moved south towards Atsis and demanded their release. Atsis was unfazed and replied that he would do whatever Malik Shah commanded. Accordingly, the anonymous Ibn Qutlamush, as well as his even more anonymous younger brother, were given over to Baghdad. The sons of Qutlamush disappear from the Muslim record to later reappear in Byzantine sources as a factor in the ongoing civil wars. As for Atsis, his growing power soon became a concern for Malik Shah, and the great sultan wrote to the emir, asking that he relinquish control to his brother Tutush. Atsis, surprise surprise, denied this quote-unquote request. Malik Shah soon got his way though. In 1076, Atsis embarked on an expedition to Egypt. He gathered forces from all throughout his little territory, other Turkmen, Kurds, Arab Bedouins, and they all made for Cairo. However, by this point, Badr al-Jamali had whipped the caliphate back into shape, and they were able to crush the invading force in a series of battles. By 1077, Atsis had no more than 15 horsemen with him, and not a penny to his name. As he fled home, tail between his legs, he probably knew he'd lost any legitimacy he'd had, and he was soon captured by the sultan's brother, the aforementioned Tutush, and executed. Tutush would continue to rule over Syria in the name of his brother Malik Shah, and when he died, his two sons would inherit a split kingdom. Their rivalry would come to play an important role in events to come. Dukak, emir of Damascus, and Radwan, emir of Aleppo, will both fight against and on occasion ally with first the Crusaders and later the Uchmer rulers. But that's a story for another time. What events in Syria clearly show is that the sons of Kutlumush were both respected by other Turkmen as legitimate dynastic rulers and willing to enter into negotiations with existing non-Turkmen states, both the Fatimids and the Romans. In fact, it's probably best to view the Sultan of Rum's right to rule as coming from the Romans. From 1072 throughout the rest of the decade, Turkmen groups appear as local powers within Anatolia. However, their behavior doesn't stray from the usual, raiding and the occasional ransoming of high-profile captives, such as Izakios Komnenos, elder brother of the soon-to-be emperor, who was captured and ransomed no less than twice. At this point, the Turkmen are not holding cities, they're not forming coherent states, they're not playing the game of politics at all. In short, they're still just raiding parties. This changed in 1077, with the revolt of Nikephoros Botaniatis. Botaniatis was a well-established general whose career went back decades to the rule of Monomachos, and who was the strategos, or governor, of the central Anatolian province, the Anatolikan theme. In 1077, he went into open revolt and declared himself emperor. Both he and the court in Constantinople knew that the civil war would be won by whoever could swing the powerful Turkmen groups in the region to their side. And here, the sons of Kutlumush make their first appearance since their escapades in Syria. 
Just as in their dealings with Shukli, the sons of Kutlimush commanded respect among the Turkmen as members of the House of Seljuk. Where they went, the other Turkmen would follow. Accordingly, Constantinople was able to cut a deal with Suleiman to get his support. But Botaniates had an ace up his sleeve. One of his closest companions was Ariskan, who you may remember as Alparslan's brother-in-law, the one who defected to the Byzantine side and set off the chain of events that had led to the Battle of Manzikert in the first place. Ariskan was able to flip Suleiman and even more importantly, forge a more lasting deal between him and Botaniates. Ariskan was familiar with both the royal Seljuk customs and Byzantine nobility, so he could bridge the gap between the two. Interestingly, Ariskan was also connected to the Nawakiya, a Turkmen group that were traditionally followers of Kutlimush, so that probably helped as well. The historian Michael Ataliates, who's biased in favor of Botaniates for political reasons, describes the alliance between the usurping Roman general and Suleiman in the following way. Some of the noblemen of Persia came to Nicaea. They were brothers in flesh and nature, and drew the eponym of Kutlimus's from their father's name, and strove for the sultan's title and power. Therefore, they fled to the land of the Romans to gain the support of a power rivaling him. What because of their royal descent they would never have accepted to do for any king of the Persians or the Romans, they unexpectedly showed to Botaniates. They bent their knees and declared that with much confidence they would lead the way of his march to the imperial city. Ataliates is basically claiming that the sons of Kutlumush, Suleiman included, were won over by the power of Botaniates, whatever that means, and they submitted to him, evoking the fact that they had not only refused to do so for other Roman emperors, but for the great Seljuk Sultan himself. He also claims that the sons of Kutlumush were fleeing the great Sultan, and had aspirations to use an alliance with Botaniates to eventually dethrone Malik Shah. This is basically the opposite of the official party line given by the Seljuk Chronicles, which were written centuries later, when the Sultan of Rum had already been firmly established. These chronicles state that after the Sultan Alparslan's death, his son Malik Shah sent Suleiman to rule in the land of the Romans, hoping to, best case scenario, win some new territory, or worst case scenario, at least get rid of the threat posed by the cadet branch. Quote, if he were to be killed, a thorn would be removed from the foot of the dynasty. This idea that the Anatolian expedition was supported by the great Seljuk Empire is backed up by Michael the Syrian, the patriarch of the Jacobite church, who wrote a century later in the 12th century. And the Byzantine historian, Johannes Zonoris, also writing in the 12th century, adds even more details to this arrangement claiming that Malik Shah and Suleiman came into conflict and the Abbasid Caliph was able to work out a compromise, Malik Shah would aid his cousin in gaining his own territory in the land of the Romans. Other sources agree that governance in the land of Rum was indeed a gift from the great sultan, but are less specific as to who Malik Shah intended to give the lands in Rum to. They say that the great Seljuk sultan had declared the land of the Romans as free game, that once won, would be under the dominion of whoever conquered it, independent from the Seljuk Empire. This land rush scheme is sometimes connected to the aftermath of the Battle of Manzikert. If you recall, again from episode 1.6, Diogenes and Alparslan had come to terms. However, Diogenes, on account of being dead, was unable to hold up his end of the bargain. And the Dukas clan, who took over afterwards, completely ignored the treaty. So the Sultan considered the deal null and void, and as punishment for having reneged, he provided incentives for Turkmen 
who made an effort to rip the empire a new one. Incentives such as independence. This whole story of Anatolia as a no-strings-attached gift, whether it was given to whoever claimed it or specifically to the sons of Kutlumush, is to be questioned. It could very easily have been a later invention on the part of the sultans of Rum, seeking a legal foundation for their independence from the Seljuk Empire, or even an invention of the empire itself. After all, this story clearly presents Rum as a gift, and the sultan of Rum is at least morally subordinate and in debt to the great sultan. However, even though he's a contemporary, we can't really trust Ataliates' account either. As I mentioned, Ataliates is a big fan of Botaniates, and presenting this rebel as the only one who could cow the sons of Kutlumush certainly served to bolster the image of his hero. Ataliates is a contemporary, though. He knows what he's talking about, and if he's lying, he's doing so willfully. So his account is still a bit more trustworthy. Another point in his column is that he also seems pretty accurate as to Seljuk internal politics. He knows the sons of Kutlumush are royal, and that they are not under the dominion of the Seljuks in Persia, for example. We can't know the exact truth, but I don't think the two stories are necessarily mutually exclusive. The arrangement between Suleiman and the rebel Botaniates definitely happened, and I doubt that Malik Shah sent his cousin, but I don't see any reason why he would have been opposed to the alliance. After all, he had no love for the Dukas clan, that's true. They had blinded Ranas Diogenes and gone back on the deal with Alparslan, so there would have been no reason to hinder a usurper to the throne. Plus, keeping Suleiman busy in Anatolia kept him from sticking his nose into affairs closer to home. Much better to have him killing Romans than mucking about in Syria and aiding the Fatimids. Regardless of the role of Malik Shah and the great Seljuk Empire in bringing Suleiman to power, it's clear that the Romans were far more important in providing legitimacy. Before 1078, the Turkmen in Anatolia were unorganized and incapable of forming their own state, at least a state that could rival the Romans. In an attempt to bring the Turkmen under their control, the Romans sought out a figure who could unite the hordes, and in doing so, provided them with the foundations of a state. At some point in the late 1070s or early 1080s, Suleiman somehow got hold of the city of Nicaea, modern-day Iznik, just across the way from Constantinople. I say somehow, because as with many things during this period, the Byzantines passed the buck as to who actually handed the city over. By this point, Suleiman also held the cities of Nicomedia and Iconion, modern-day Izmit and Konya. And in 1081, Alexios Komnenos finally came to power. And he was immediately faced with an invasion from Robert Giscar. The Normans of Italy were soon flooding into the Balkans, and an invasion of Constantinople seemed imminent. His daughter, the historian Anna Komnena, tries her hardest to stress just how dire the situation in the West was because it forced her father to recognize Suleiman. He signed a treaty with this son of Kutlumush and acknowledged the Turkmen's right to rule in lands that had just decades prior been part of the empire. The Sultanate of Rum had truly arrived. We will, of course, get back to the Roman Empire, but for now, we have to bring Suleiman's success story to its end. After 1081, it seems Suleiman wanted to extend his power eastward. Remember, the sons of Kutlumush had already tried their hand at Syrian conquest once. From 1082 to 1084, he slowly began to penetrate into the region of Cilicia, and quickly settled on Antioch as a prime target. Back in episode 1.7, we explored the little adventures of Filaretos Prahamios, who controlled a chunk of territory in northern Syria, 
including Antioch. As I mentioned then, the story of how Filaretos lost Antioch is a bit garbled. What the sources seem to agree on, though, is that there was some sort of familial feud. The Muslim sources mostly state that Filaretos was in conflict with his son and had imprisoned him, and that then Junior somehow negotiated a deal with the governor of Antioch to hand the city over to Suleiman. The Christian sources, including Anacomnena, add a religious tinge to this whole thing and say that Filaretos had either converted or considered converting to Islam, and that this was what had led his son to make an alliance with Suleiman. Yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me either. Suleiman was a Muslim. If Junior was worried about his dad converting, why hand over territory to Suleiman? I'm more inclined to believe the Muslim sources on this one. The role of the Roman Empire, now under the control of Alexios Komnenos, is also difficult to suss out. Alexios was closely allied with Suleiman, so it's not impossible that it was he who sent the newly minted ruler of Anatolia to Antioch. Whatever the chain of events, the conclusion is pretty clear. In 1084, Suleiman Shah took the city of Antioch, but now he faced complications. In Anatolia, he'd been operating without any oversight from his cousin Malik Shah, but by extending his power to northern Syria, he was getting back into the Seljuk dynastic game. Syria was now technically under the dominion of the great sultan's brother, Tutush, and Suleiman couldn't risk entering into direct conflict with either. So he presented himself as a loyal servant of Malik Shah, a subordinate, hoping to maybe rehabilitate his image. This didn't really work. Whatever his long-term intentions were, it wasn't long before he fucked up any chance of getting along with his cousins. The tension started when Suleiman had a dispute with the emir of Aleppo, Sharaf ad-Dawla. Sharaf had a long and storied history. Way back in the 1050s, he'd been allied with al-Wasasiri against Tugru, but he'd come back into the Seljuk fold by making an alliance with Tutush in the 1070s. Eventually, he ended up emir of Aleppo, and nominally at least under the dominion of the great Seljuk Empire. But here on the frontier, as we've seen with Atsis, those loyalties were always a bit more... vague. Sharaf's beef with Suleiman concerned money. See, Filaretos had been paying the emir protection money to avoid raids on Antioch. But when Suleiman took over, the payments had stopped. So Sharaf contacted Suleiman, saying basically, this bitch better have my money. Suleiman replied that Filaretos had been an infidel, and of course he'd had to pay a tax, just as all Christians paid their jizya, the poll tax. But Suleiman was a Muslim and a loyal servant of the Sultan Malik Shah, so he wouldn't be paying a dime. Sharaf was obviously not happy about this, and he set out at the head of an army to both get paid and teach Suleiman his place. This was a bad move. In 1085, Suleiman's forces defeated and killed Sharaf. However, when Suleiman then moved to absorb Aleppo, the local elites contacted Tutush. Tutush was not at all happy to hear that his cousin was meddling in Syrian politics, so he sent his forces to prevent Suleiman from taking Aleppo. In 1086, Suleiman was either killed in battle or committed suicide to prevent being captured alive. In the aftermath of Suleiman's death, Antioch fell back under more direct Seljuk control, but the territories in Anatolia remained more or less independent. Malik Shah also took Suleiman's two sons prisoner and kept them at his court in Isfahan. However, just six years later, in 1092, the great sultan Malik Shah died, and Suleiman's sons would use the inevitable civil war as their opportunity to slip out of Persia and back to Anatolia. Once there, the eldest, Kilij Arslan, 
would retake control of the lands his father had won and firmly establish the Sultanate of Rum as a dynastic state. Three years later, the Crusaders would make their way across the Bosporus and into his dominion. That's the story we started today's episode with. Let's wrap up by reflecting on what Suleiman accomplished. Last time, we touched on the great man theory of history, which focuses on the impact of individuals on history. If you're looking for a candidate to back this theory up, you couldn't do much better than Suleiman. Of the Seljuk expansion, which started in the early 11th century, the transformation of Anatolia is probably the most striking and long-lasting effect. Language works pretty well as a marker of cultural and ethnic identity, and the linguistic lens is a useful tool through which to view the Turkmen migration that started in the 11th century and its impact on demographics. In modern-day Persia and Mesopotamia, mostly the states of Iran and Iraq, Persian and Arabic, respectively, remain the dominant languages. In the world of the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkic languages only reign in Azerbaijan and Turkey. Turkey is not only the westernmost Turkic state, but by far the largest. As I mentioned in the introduction, the transformation of Anatolia from a fully Hellenized region, the heartland of the Byzantine Roman Empire, to the core of the largest Turkish nation in the world, didn't happen overnight. It was still happening in the 1920s. However, 1081 and the foundation of a Turkish state, not just raiding parties or ambitious emirs like Atsis, but an independent and legitimate state, kicked off a centuries-long process that never took hold elsewhere. Why is this? Well, a large part is that the opportunity was there. The political instability in the Roman Empire opened the door to invasion. But the same could be said about Syria-Palestine. The Fatimid Caliphate was just as vulnerable, if not more so. It's not outside the realm of possibility to imagine a parallel universe where Turkey is a Levantine state. The difference is in part because of legitimacy. Unlike warlords such as Aziz, Suleiman was of the house of kingship. He was viewed as a legitimate ruler. But also, unlike his cousin Tutush, also a Seljuk, he was separate enough from the lineage of the great Seljuk Sultan that he could carve out his own path. We also can't forget the role of geography. Anatolia, with its expansive plateaus, was ideal for natives of the steppe. Remember that Tugrul's forces had rebelled when he tried to station them in Iraq. For the Turkmen to migrate to those regions, they would first have to change their ecological practices, their entire way of life. It meant no more sheep and horses. Whereas for centuries to come, Turkmen will continue to migrate to Anatolia. They'll be drawn there like a magnet. And once arrived, they'll find established Turkish states and terrain that's just like back home. In the great Seljuk Empire, the Turkmen ruled, but they did so in a Persian way, and their subjects mainly continued the same way of life they'd had before. If anything, it was the new arrivals that adapted to the environment. But Anatolia could support extensive populations of Turkmen that thrived, and instead of adapting and assimilating to existing ecological behavior, they changed the way of life to suit them. This meant that instead of just being under the thumb of a surface-level ruling class of Turkmen, as in Persia and Mesopotamia, the land of the Romans came to house substantial native Turkic populations that persist to the modern day, obviously. There's no reason it had to turn out this way, though. If it hadn't been Suleiman, if it had been another, less legitimate Turkmen emir who'd moved into Anatolia, the Romans might have found it easier to reconquer the territory and revert the land back into just another Roman province. For things to work out just the way they did, the role of Suleiman ibn Kutlumush 
couldn't have been played by anyone else. His legitimacy as a Seljuk was what allowed his son, Kilij Arslan, to pick up where his father had left off and keep the Sultanate of Rum bound together under his rule. We'll be coming back to Kilij and the Turkmen of Anatolia in time. But we have more pressing business to deal with first. We've been dancing around it for months, and today we met some of the main characters. It's the final chapter in the century-long Roman tragedy. Between 1072 and 1081, rebels and usurpers brought the empire to its lowest point yet. And of course, the main characters nearly all share the same name. This is a Byzantine story. So join us next time on History of the Uchimer for the ballad of Nikephoros Botaniates, Nikephoros Briennios, Nikephoros Melesinos, and of course, the eunuch Nikephoritsis. Little Nikephoros. <laughs>